Well, hello there and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to figure out how we can prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, well, first of all, let me just say this is one heck of a first episode <laughs> and I'm excited for you to be here. And if you're returning, welcome back and you are also in for a treat today. And I appreciate you so much for being here because today you and I get to hang out with Dr. Mark Goulston. Dr. Mark Goulston is a transformational executive coach and member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches and a founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum. He is the author, co-author, and contributor to 11 books with his book, Just Listen, being translated into 28 languages and becoming the top book on listening in the world. He has had a long, wide-ranging career, including being a UCLA professor of psychiatry, world-renowned expert in suicide prevention, trainer of FBI and police hostage negotiators, creator and featured expert in documentaries related to suicide prevention, subject of a PBS special on listening, and advisor in the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. He is the inventor of surgical empathy, which is a process of going inside people and unlocking them from destructive thoughts, feelings, and behavior. He hosts the highly ranked and rated podcast, My Wake Up Call. His three passions beyond his family and friends are future-proofing everyone's future, social and racial justice and equity, and improving mental health globally. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look up for three specific things. Number one, why the secret to getting through to anyone is not what you tell them, but what you get them to tell you and what happens in their minds in the process. Number two, we talk about a multitude of ways that you can actually do that, including his fill in the blank and take it all the way to no strategies. And number three, how to deal with difficult people drawing on Dr. Goulson's story from being an advisor on the OJ Simpson criminal trial for the prosecution. And I, as a copywriter, I don't like giving more than three, but I have to give a fourth one for this one because as I mentioned from his bio, Dr. Goulson is a world-renowned expert in suicide prevention. So if you have a son or daughter, brother, sister, friend, anyone that you know that is struggling with some mental health issues, he's going to show how you can use listening to help people that are in a tough place to open up to you and share when they're going through something so that you can help support them. So this episode can literally change someone's life if you know somebody that's going through a rough time because Dr. Goulston reveals some things that you can do to actually help in those situations when before this conversation, I didn't even know how to approach it. So, so grateful that he shared that kind of stuff because this can make a massive impact and literally save some people. So please enjoy this incredible conversation with Dr. Mark Goulston. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast. Dr. Mark Goulston, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. This is going to be awesome. Well, I'm super excited to be here. You're, you know, when people are as enthusiastic about a person, a guest like me, it gives me something to live up to. <laughs> yeah, well, let me just start by giving a little bit of context for everyone. So, um, as, as many people know, I do lots of research for the show and I had on Michael Sheen, 
a few weeks ago. And in my research, I listened to it, your interview with him. And usually what I do for most guests, I listen to one sometimes more than that before I interview them. And so over the past year of running my show, I've listened to probably over 200 different shows and very rarely do I get curious as to who the host is. <laughs> so I'm listening to the interview and I'm like, who the heck is this guy? His interview style is incredible. He's asking awesome questions. And sure enough, I find out you're the author of the top book on listening in the world. So super grateful to have you here and excited for your time and to dive in. And I thought um, a, a really good place to start would be with uh, Dr. Edwin Schneidman and what he had to do with your journey into the dark night of the soul. So we'll kind of toss people off the deep end, but this would be an awesome story if we could kick things off here. Yes, Dr. Edwin Schneidman was a pioneer in the field of suicide prevention. So he was the suicide prevention, what Marshall Goldsmith is to executive coaching, what um, uh, uh, Peter Drucker was to management, and he uh, co-founded the suicide prevention centers in Washington, Los Angeles, and he was a professor at UCLA, and he was one of my early mentors because uh, I did my psychiatry training at UCLA. And uh, and he started my my practice off with patients who were suicidal. So what would happen is he would go up and visit and do a consultation with patients that needed to be discharged, but some of the residents were uncomfortable seeing them as an outpatient. And in order to be discharged, he needed to find someone who he could refer them to. So he would go up, meet the patient, and it was always the same pattern. He'd, he'd page me on my beeper. Back then, we had beepers. And, and he would always say the same thing. He'd say, Mark, this is Ed. I'm with this handsome young man. I'm with this lovely young woman. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them, and they put them on the phone, and we'd make a little bit of a connection, and then they'd be discharged, and I would start to see them. And one of the things that I discovered, uh, it, it was my good fortune that a fellowship I was going to do got canceled. So I was going to go into a geriatric psychiatry fellowship, but it got canceled. So I thought, well, why don't I just go out and see if I can have a practice, see if anybody comes to me, see if anybody refers to me. And Dr. Schneidman was referring these suicidal patients. And conventional wisdom is you shouldn't be seeing anyone who's suicide, more than one in a practice, and probably a quarter to a third of my practice were these people. But one of the things I discovered by not being in a fellowship and not working for an institution is when I was with people, uh, I got this sense when I looked into their eyes, <clears throat> or when I listened into their eyes, that, uh, that they were screaming out at me from their eyes, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. And so I had a choice, which was to check boxes and be very professional, or stop checking boxes and just see where their eyes wanted me to go. And where their eyes wanted me to go, I learned over time, is they wanted to take me into the dark night of the soul because they were stuck there. And what I realized is when they were feeling that way, they couldn't come to where I was. I had to go to where they were. And, and it's actually something I uh, recently, because I've had a pretty long career, 
and something I'm trying to teach people and maybe uh, your listeners, uh, I it really started when I uh, gave a main talk in Moscow two, two or three years ago, and I was headlining with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He has a book out called Noise. And I was a headline or lawn with him because five of my books are bestsellers in Moscow. And I don't want to get into the current, you know, war, but the Russian people are, are wonderful. In fact, the people of the world are wonderful. A lot of the leaders are what get us into trouble. But one of the things that I did there that I think I learned with my suicidal patients, and I'll send you a video clip of it, is what I realize, and I'm going to do this with you, Brandon, is what I realize is that underneath people listening to you, they're listening for something. And if you can just be curious what they're listening for, they will feel your curiosity and lean towards you. And if you can be curious without an agenda, and you're just, and so with the suicidal patients, they were listening for, could you take, could you come find me in the dark night of the soul because I've been there alone too long? And when they felt, I was there next to them, and they felt felt by me. They started to cry, and they started to heal. Because uh, something you may not know, but anybody who's been suicidal on multiple occasions, death is compassionate to hopelessness and psychological pain that won't go away. Death basically says, I'll take it away. You can just end it all. And so I know I'm jumping, but what I did back, going back to Moscow is I realized that a thousand Russian businessmen and businesswomen were listening for something. And so this, here's an example. So you're listening to me, meaning you've done a lot of research on me, you've checked a lot of boxes, you want to cover certain things, and we will. But tell me if this feels different. I think underneath you're listening to me, this is what you're listening for. I think the trust and confidence of your listeners and viewers matters to you. And you want to honor their trust and confidence. And the best way to honor it is to not waste their time. And so you want to have guests on who don't waste your listeners or viewers' time. And you want to have uh, uh, listeners, I mean, excuse me, you want to have guests <clears throat> who uh, can give you and your listeners and viewers information that's relevant to them and that's clear, concise, and usable by them because that then you're giving them high value and you're honoring their trust and confidence you may also be listening for best-selling authors who are awful because you have to go back to them and say, uh, you know, we can't use the interview. And uh, maybe we'll do it over again. And I'm not sure you've ever run into that, but uh, I certainly have. So am I getting it right? Is that what you're listening for? Absolutely. I 
I and I'm grateful that you have that perspective because some some guests don't don't think about it from the perspective of the the audience listening. They think about an agenda that they may have. So I, I appreciate that deeply. And so you and you felt yourself lean into it because it was aligned with what your you know what your purpose is. Absolutely. Now that's going to make it. Okay, go yeah, back super. to the interview because you're saying, Mark, we just connected emotionally. Who cares about the interview now? <laughs> Well, the, the, in, list, in, in listening to the other interviews you do, you do such an incredible job of just, uh, just uh, you're one of those guests where you're very easy to host because you just have beautiful, incredible stories. So, so, you, so let's go back a little bit to the story of Dr. Edmund Schneidman. And I, I would love for you to give a specific example of going into the dark night of the soul with a patient. And um, I don't know if you have one that immediately comes to mind, but I heard you tell this incredible yeah, story about I, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, somebody that you almost, I would assume it was one of the first times you've yeah. Um, so, uh, I was doing a pretty good job of listening, and then there was an incident with a patient named Nancy. I'll change her name. That's not her name. Just to protect, uh, you know, her identity. And once a month, I would moonlight at a state psychiatric hospital uh, near Los Angeles, and I would cover for other doctors. Uh, for 48 hours and so sometimes you don't sleep for 24 hours and you can be sleep deprived and when you're sleep deprived sometimes your mind your physiology plays tricks on you so nancy was someone who had made three or four suicide attempts before i started seeing her she was referred to me by dr schneidman and i was seeing her for about six months two three times a week and she she rarely spoke and she rarely made eye contact and she wasn't catatonic. She was just, something was just missing. And so there was one Monday when I saw her, and I had been up for about 24 hours because I had been moonlighting that weekend. And as I was with her, uh, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm just with her. She's not looking at me, and I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So I did a neurologic exam on myself because, you know, we were trained at school. And I'm <laughs> tapping my knees and I'm looking at my outstretched finger to see if I have double vision. And I'm checking all these things. And it wasn't rude because she didn't look at me. And I realized uh, I'm not having a stroke or seizure. I'm all here. Um, and then I got really, it got very cold. And then I had this crazy idea that I was, uh, I was feeling what she was feeling. I was looking at the world, feeling what she was feeling, that it was cold and black and white. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I wouldn't say. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you to kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought, I'm screwed. I, I just gave her permission. And that was really one of the first times where she looked at me, and she looked right into my eyes like she was grabbing onto them like a drowning person grabbing onto a 
you know, a lifeguard. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding I'm overdue. And I looked at her and I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she held onto my eyes and she said, if you can really understand why I might need to kill myself, get out of the pain, maybe I won't have to. And then the color came back, the room came back, and then I kept holding onto her eyes. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you treatments or throw treatments at you that have been tried before that may not have worked. Would that be okay? And she kind of nodded, but we were still holding eyes. And I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are because you've been there alone too long. And I just don't want you to be alone anymore. Would that be okay? And her eyes got a little watery, and she, she nodded, yes. And so I think that's the story you were referring to. Absolutely. It's so beautiful, and I can't imagine um, that how long that silence must have felt after that came out of your mouth. <laughs> you must have been like, oh my God, what did I do? But I think that is such a beautiful story that illustrates the power of really connecting with someone and honoring how they're feeling. And that leads to an entirely different tone of the relationship because they don't care how much, you know, what, what you're doing about until they know that you care about them. So I love that story, not only because it's a powerful story, but it also illustrates the core premise of your book, Just Listen, which I just listened to it on Audible. <laughs> and it was absolutely incredible. And I, I want to kind of tackle one of the core premises of your book that you just illustrated with, it, with, with that story. But you talk about how the secret to getting through is not about what you tell people, but rather what you get them to tell you and what happens in their mind in the process. And I think that for most people hearing that, it might sound a little bit counterintuitive because when somebody says I'm not getting through, typically that means that they're trying to say something and they're just hitting a wall, right? So I would love for you to explain a little bit about what you mean by that and that core premise so that people understand that more well, effectively. Uh, better than explain, let me show it because one of my passions is suicide prevention. I'm retired now, but I do give presentations and talks to parents and counselors who want to hear my approach, which is not evidence-based. It just seems to work. And I'm partnering with a fellow named Jason Reed. He's a serial entrepreneur, and his 14-year-old son died by suicide three years ago. And we do presentations together. We did a couple to YPO Global and uh, a, live, a live one to EO, which is entrepreneur organization to about 400 entrepreneurs. And uh, during the presentation, so here's an example of getting where people are coming from. And this may not apply to your listeners, but it may apply to your listeners if they have a sibling who's not doing too well. And it's for parents what to, what to say to a teen that they're worried about. But if your listeners are entrepreneurs, they may have a sibling who's in a tough place. And these are, there's four prompts. And here are the four prompts. Uh, you reach out to that person and say, you know, a lot of us are worried about how people are doing, especially with the pandemic. Can I run some things by you? Hopefully they'll say, okay. Or if you're a parent, they'll say, okay, ma, okay, dad. And the first prompt is, at its worst, 
how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? And they're going to go, huh? Yeah, at its worth, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? And here's a taste of something that I call surgical empathy. They might say, pretty awful. And surgical empathy goes deeper. Pretty awful or very awful? Okay, okay, very awful. The second prompt, uh, and when you're feeling that way, how alone do you feel with it? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or very alone? Okay, okay, very alone. Then the third prompt is, take me to the last time you felt that. And they're going to go, huh? You know, take me to the last time. Uh, if you're a parent worried about a teenager, you might say, was it was it 2.30 in the morning a few days ago because we heard you walking around in your room in the middle of the night? Uh, or it could be at some other time. And something interesting happened that when they can share with you a time when they felt that badly, not necessarily suicidal, but awful and alone, when they share it so clearly that you can see it with your eyes as the listener, they refeel it. So if it's a parent to a teenager, if they say, I was up at 2.30 and I couldn't get to sleep, and you're the parent or you're the sibling, you say, so what happened after that? I couldn't get to sleep. I, I, I tried. I, I, it wasn't happening. I had a test the next day. Uh, what happened next? I, I hit the pillow. I felt like hitting the wall. I was just, I didn't know what to do. So that sounds awful. What happened next? Well, I started looking for you know, cold medicine or Benadryl or something that would knock me out. And I couldn't find it. And then what happened? It just kept going on. And then the sun rose. And I felt a little bit better. Then the fourth prompt is you say, look, as your sibling, as your brother, as your sister, as your mom, as your dad, I have a favor to ask you. What's that? Next time you feel that way, or you're heading in that direction, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention. Because I'm distracted by tons of things, and, it, and it's tough for me to give my undivided attention to anything. But there's nothing more important to you, my brother, my sister, who I love, or my son or my daughter, who I love, than helping you feel less alone when you're feeling that awful. Could you track with that? Yeah, that was, so just as a recap, so if anybody's looking at getting those, I was trying to write them all down. So the four prompts are, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life and yourself? And then using surgical empathy to go even deeper than the surface level. And when you're feeling that way, how alone do you feel with it? Then the next prompt, take me to the last time you felt that. And they kind of re refill that whole situation. You go deeper and deeper. And then as your insert your relationship, I have a favor to ask you the next time you feel that way, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention. So that is beautiful. And I think that's, there's so many people like when I say, I say all the time that podcasts can change lives, but there's literally no doubt that this, that clip right there can absolutely change someone's lives because I know that, um, not from, 
firsthand experience, I guess I'll say, but I just know that the people that don't feel like they can open those lines of communications, that's when it deepens and deepens where um, they, they feel even sadder and more alone. And so by, I would assume by having this conversation, it opens the dialogue and gives them permission to step forward. And then you can prevent lots of the catastrophic things from happening once they feel like safe in, in approaching you in that. Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah, the, the entire premise of the whole thing? You know, it's interesting. Um, people don't Perfect. lack the will to connect with other people. They lack the way. And when you give people a step-by-step -step mm. way to connect with other people, they'll follow it. They'll 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 find the will to do it. But mm -hmm. I think what's happened, and and I fault uh, technology and the internet with this. We're so used to the internet reacting and responding to us so quickly, and we type in and then we get a response. That what's atrophied is our ability to have conversations where people open up to each other. Mm. 100%. So let's let's dive in a little because I think what one of the things you do so brilliantly in the book is you explain the biology behind all this stuff and why some of this stuff works. So I, I, I know that you kind of talk about the different parts of the brain, which is brilliant, but there was one part and you can challenge me on this. Is I thought I was like, oh, this is the part that we, we probably shouldn't miss. And it, that's talking about mirror neurons and the mirror, mirror neuron. neuron yeah. Okay. All right. So can we can we yeah, go there and yeah. kind of explain that? Because I think that's that's perfect. So uh, I think in the late 1980s, some researchers discovered something in the brains of macaque monkeys, which they called monkey see, monkey do neurons, uh, because monkeys will imitate each other. They'll even imitate you. You stick your tongue out, they'll stick their tongue out back at you. And they've discovered that these neurons are also in human beings, and they're responsible for or related to imitation, learning, and empathy. And when they're dysfunctional, they're associated or probably associated with autism or people on the spectrum, Asperger's, because you, you just don't pick up the cues. You, you, you're not able to mirror other people. And what I talked about in the book is, uh, and, and this was a new term we introduced, the mirror neuron gap what that means is that when we're caring about other people, when we're conforming to their emotional, psychological needs, we're not scorekeepers, but we'd like them to care in exchange. You know? And when we don't feel like they care, when we feel they're sarcastic, when they're dismissive, when they're critical, it widens the mirror neuron gap. But when they're compassionate, empathetic, empathetic, and really accurately empathetic, surgically empathetic, uh, it closes the mirror neuron gap. And when I do presentations, one of the things that I talk about is why tearjerker movies make us cry. Because when you're going to a movie like Silver Linings Playbook, which is now an old movie, if you remember it, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence are the main protagonists, and they're both kind of quirky. And all through the movie, you know they like each other, but they're just not connecting. And there's a final scene at the end of the movie where uh, I think uh, they're at a dance and uh, Jennifer Lawrence runs out and she's all uh, you know upset. And Bradley Cooper runs out after her and basically tells her, uh, gives her a letter that he wrote, I think one week or two weeks earlier, that basically said he loved her. 
and she looked at it and she looked at him and and i think she says you love me and then he says i love you and then they they hug and what happens is that the audience starts to cry because we all have relationships in which we're missing each other emotionally and we don't we don't like missing each other emotionally but we don't know how to connect so one of the reasons we cry in those movies is because the mirror neuron gap is closed there's a perfect empathic connection uh, there's an outpouring of oxytocin and dopamine and all those things and and we start and we cry with relief when we see that they actually got to understand each other and it's something that we're all hungry for mm -hmm. i thank you so much for sharing that and i think that that just i i appreciate so much how you're you're contextualizing all these different conversations is because i think that in many of the sales conversations or in many of the marketing conversations it's always very one-sided right and so the more that we can get into these conversations where we're closing that gap for people where they feel secure and they feel safe uh it just makes it makes it less of a transaction and more of a transformation which i think is a beautiful thing and um that's what we're all here for as humans <laughs> is deeper and deeper connections with people so uh love that and i never heard about the mirror neuron gap so i think that's really, really powerful for everyone to understand. And the, the, so this, this kind of leads me to the, the next part that I wanted to dive in with you is that, you know, you talk about the biology of the book, but then once you understand, okay, people want to feel listened to and you need to ask the right questions, you then help people get through to everyone by some core rules. You have nine core rules for getting through to everyone and 12 ways to reach people um, at, at any point in the persuasion cycle, which I don't know if you want to cover that first, but I picked out a few of the core rules that I think would be the coolest to dive into. But before we get into that, did you want to maybe share a brief overview of the persuasion cycle so that we can kind of understand what people go through? Yeah, in the book, there's one graphic in the book and it's called the persuasion cycle. And it's what you want to do when you want to persuade another person. And I'll share with you a, another observation worth writing down. You, when you speak to people, I think you want to use experienced near language versus experienced distant language. So experienced near language is language that as soon as you hear it, you not only understand it, but you feel it through the experience, whereas experienced distant language is, can feel like jargon. So the persuasion cycle says you basically want to move another person. So imagine someone is resistant to you, resistant to even listening to you. So how do you have a conversation where you move them from resistant to listening to listening to considering what you're saying? And, by, and those three uh, are what goes on uh, when we achieve buy-in from another person. You know, how do you get someone who's resistant to consider what you're saying, to listen to what you're saying and consider what you're saying? And then from there, uh, you move them from considering to willing to do something, to doing it, to glad they did it, to continuing to do it. So if you follow those steps, you'll see its experience near. I could have used jargon with, you know, pattern recognition or, you know, whatever, but I think you can follow that it makes sense that you want to move people 
from resistant through all those other stages. And when you try to cut a corner, you often scare them away. I, I, I want to segue to something that, that I think your listeners will find interesting. Every three months, I do a three, either a three-hour or six-hour training for an accelerator uh, called Expert Dojo. You can find it at Expert Dojo. Um, you won't find my presentation. But I present to about 20 to 25 startups. And those startups are past the past the angel and friends funding, and they need to go out and get investors. So it's at a different level, and they need investors. And so uh, I speak with them about the mind of an investor. And so something that they really seem to enjoy, as I say, have you ever met with an investor, and after three minutes, they smile at you, and you think the smile's a yes, and by the time you get to the end of your presentation, the smile is a no, and they're very polite. Now, sometimes the smile is yes, but, but frequently, they're smiling because they already know they want to say no to you. You've only, you're into the third or fourth minute of your presentation. Uh, they know it's a no. They know you put a lot of work into the deck. So they're smiling and being polite, and you show the rest of your deck, and they don't care. And so you think the smile is going to lead to, you know, uh, uh, how much money do you need? Uh, and instead, it's, uh, it's a no. So what I've coached them on is that if you, and I say, look, investors, basically don't smile when it's about money. Money is very serious. You know, and if they're not cracking a joke or something, they're not, if they're smiling, it's because uh, they want to be polite and not rude. So what I've suggested people, and this is a, another way of using uh, the mirror neuron, closing the mirror neuron gap or surgical empathy. Uh, and uh, next time this happens and you get a sense that that smile is not a yes, what you say to them is, can we pause for a moment? And they're going to get nervous because you just caught them not wanting to be rude. And they'll go, what? Yeah, can we pause for a moment? And they'll go, what? And you say, when we started, you had money, and I'm a company that needs that money. And we're at a point where you have money, and we're not going to see any of it. Because you were listening for something, and you didn't hear it. Now, we prepared this deck because we thought we would share with you the things that you, that you most wanted to hear, but we missed something. Could you tell me what that is? Because we may still have it. We, we just didn't put it in the deck because we couldn't read your mind completely. Could you tell us what that is? Because if we have it, we'll tell you. And by the way, if we don't have it, I'm with over 20 other companies that might have it. I could make an introduction, you know, and, and I can send you materials from them. And, uh, and if it looks like there might be something you'd want to invest in, I'll make the introduction. So you've taken a conversation where you were about to lose a potential investor and their money you pivoted to focusing on their being successful 
And, and not only that, if you can connect them with people in your cohort, you know, those people are going to be very grateful to you. And some of them are going to want to return the favor, you know, if they run into investors. So could you track with that? Yeah, it's so beautiful because like you're putting yourself in their perspective, like what are they considering? What's important to them? It goes back to the beginning where you were talking about what's valuable in it for me as a, as a host. What am I looking for for my audience? I think that that's kind of the parallel that I that I drew between those two of them. It's like putting yourself in their shoes. What are they looking for? What do they care about? And the moment that you notice, whether it's a smile or I would assume in other conversations, it could be a conversation with your wife. It could be a sales conversation or whatever it may be. It's like if you see them check out or they're not really there anymore, that you kind of almost have like a little bit of a pattern interrupt. And you're like, hold on, can, can we just reconnect here for a second? And, and you're almost willing and vulnerable to share, I must have said something that didn't resonate with you here. And you know what's more important to me than whatever this conversation is that we're having right now is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm staying in alignment and being adding value to you. Would you mind sharing and providing feedback as to what that might be? Or I wanna, so, so is that kind of like another way that we can apply it to other situations is just kind of whenever you see someone checking out, <laughs> pause and then reframe it and maybe clarify on where you may have lost them? Absolutely. Uh in one of my books, you can tell me because you're closer to just listen than I am. Uh, there was a chapter called Take It All the Way to Know. Yeah, love this one. It was really good. So uh, I, I've been fortunate. I've had eight mentors. They've all died, unfortunately. The last one was Larry King from CNN. I used to be wow. part of a group that had breakfast with him every morning, uh, you know, every morning for a couple of years before uh, the pandemic. And in that chapter, I spoke about another one of my mentors, Walter Dunn, who was a deal maker at Coke way back when. In fact, he got Coke, I believe, into, uh, and not Coke, I mean Coca-Cola. <laughs> not cocaine, mm -hmm. but he got Coca-Cola. <laughs> Different Major business. League baseball, the NFL, I think Disneyland. So he went way back. And uh, and he taught me about this, this idea of take it all the way to know. And what he talked about, and this was interesting, he said, you know, when you're pitching someone and, you know, let's say they do want it, but, you know, uh, you know, because they have a need for what you have, he said, until you get a no, you've asked for too little. Mm. And a lot of people really uncomfortable, but push it all the way to no, because uh, you want to know what the limits are of how much they're willing to give you. And there's an anecdote in that chapter where, He's speaking to the head of one of the top theater chains about having Coca-Cola in their lobbies. And he, he was such a likable person that he's speaking to this person. And at the end of it, they said, Walter, uh, we've decided to go with Pepsi because you didn't uh, ask us about renovating our lobbies. And we're renovating our lobbies and Pepsi uh, has has agreed to subsidize that. And Walter said, Coke can do that. And the, and the guy said, good, we'll go with Coke. Mm. So I thought it was a, a fascinating example of pushing things all the way to know. Something else I wanted to share with you because, you know, we're good with the way we're meandering and there's nuggets here and there, hopefully. Um, yeah, absolutely. When I did the presentation to the 
accelerator. I really love doing it because I get to try out some of my latest concepts. And one of the things I began with is I, I said, I'm going to start with what I call a universal TED Talk. And I may or may not give this as a TED Talk, but, and I, and I said, uh, uh, and it started out this way. I, I said, uh, I paused, I looked at them, and I said, I just created an avatar for all of you. I said, you know what an avatar is. And I figured out something that all of you want, 100% of you want. Let me run it by you. I think 100% of you can't stand having someone waste your time. So raise your hand if you like someone wasting your time. And they all chuckled. The chuckle was, that's pretty good, Mark. And then uh, I said, said, well, I'm not satisfied with that. So here are some things you might want to write down. Uh, I, I said, what is the best use of your time would be if I share with you something that is relevant to you, clear, concise, and you could actually do it. So you're listening for something that's relevant to your situation, that's clear, concise, and you could do it. Is that true? And they all nodded like, you're doing well, Mark. And, I, and, and, then, uh, and then I said, furthermore, you know, because I can't quit while I'm ahead, uh, what you're really also listening for is something that is counterintuitive, meaning you think to yourself, I never would have thought of intuitively correct, meaning I think that would I think that would work. I think that would solve our problem. And then finally, we could do that. Uh, so are you also listening for that? And then I said, uh, I'm going to give you the best example of that with a couple anecdotes uh, uh, that are that are possibly two of the most memorable anecdotes in the history of the com of computer technology. The first one was when Steve Jobs went to Xerox Park and discovered the mouse and the graphical user interface. And there's actually a video. If you're listening to this or watching this, look up Xerox Park National Geographic Steve Jobs. It'll show you a, a dramatization of Steve Jobs discovering uh, the, the, uh, the GUI, graphical user interface, and the mouse. And you'll see that uh, his, his expression is, uh, he saw something counterintuitive, and it's like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, ne I never would have thought of that. And then it's intuitively correct. So in the uh, video, he looks at Steve Wozniak, and Steve Wozniak says, once they go to the mouse, they're not going to go back to typing. So that's uh, uh, intuitively correct. And then at the end of the video clip, Walter Isaacson, who wrote one of the books, says Xerox didn't know what to do with this, but Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak went back to Apple and created the Macintosh. Mm -hmm. 
And then I bookended it. I said that. So that that was a remarkable uh, incident in the history of computer technology. But another one, which is something, if you're listening in and viewing this, you should keep. You should take to heart. Do is when in 2007 he introduced the iPhone. There was a famous presentation where he said, "It's an iPod. It's a telephone. It's an internet connecting device." It's an iPod. It's a telephone. It's an interconnecting connecting device. These are not three separate devices. This is one. I give you iPhone. And so it's so if you think about it, he created in that presentation what Apple does and I guess Tesla does every time they have something new. So so they've tuned into our brains to our mirror neurons and when they do that we go i never would have thought of that that's amazing mm -hmm. oh wow i think i can use that i think i could and then the third thing is i'm gonna buy it yeah that i love that's so cool so counterintuitive but in intuitively correct and then we could do that that's so cool because i think that most people are like yeah i've heard that so you want to at least position your message in a way where it's like oh that's something i haven't heard before so it gets their curiosity to begin with but then it's like it can't be too far left field where that that they can't even begin to understand that they could be applied to them it's got to find that juicy middle <laughs> between counterintuitive intuitively correct and actually having them apply that love that, that that's cool and i i if you have anything to explain on that, otherwise I want to find out how you met Larry King and how you developed that relationship. You kind of just dropped that and we, we kept going, but that's, that was something I was really curious to find out a little bit more about. So either way, <laughs> I would love to hear more. Actually very funny. Uh, so I met someone, so the, he, he is, had been having breakfast for 21 years with different group of people and they, it would get him out of bed in the morning and uh, I'm not a early riser, it got me out of bed. And so I met someone who was part of that group and he said, oh, I'll, uh, uh, I'll bring you to Larry. Uh, you know, you'll meet Larry King. And I remember the first time we met, there were six of us uh, at two square tables next to each other. And I was diagonally furthest away from Larry King. And Larry's an intent listener himself. So he was deeply engaged with the person he was talking to. And uh, uh, I think the person introduced him to me. And he you know, sort of looked at me, but, you know, he was he was not focused on me and I was the furthest away from him. And, uh, and it's towards the end of it. And I'm just listening to him. And I said, Larry, uh, I have a question for you. And he looked at me kind of, you know, cause he's from Brooklyn. He has that rough, right? He said, what? I said, uh, you're pretty curious, aren't you? He said, yeah. I said, how long have you been curious? My whole life. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, um, I didn't care about getting ice cream from the ice cream truck when I was a kid. I wanted to know how they made ice cream and they kept it in the truck so cold. So I've been curious about things. So I looked at him and I said, recently, there was an interview, uh, I think by uh, the last word, Lawrence O'Donnell, I think is his name. And he was interviewing Sully Sullenberger, who landed on the Hudson. And they were talking about Trump. 
And Sully Sullenberger said, uh, I find him, President Trump, to be incurious, meaning I don't know that he can learn because he's incurious. And, and I thought that was a fascinating word. So I looked at Larry. I said, I have a suggestion. Get Sully Sullenberger on your show, and you're going to make two hats. And on the hat, it's going to say, not MAGA, it's going to say MACA, M-A-C-A. And you're going to give, uh, you're going to say to Sully Sullenberger, Sully, you find the president to be incurious. Why don't we start a campaign, make America curious again? And you give him a hat. You know, it says MACA on it. And so he's listening to that. And the person he was speaking to, who's uh, this wonderful guy, uh, who's kind of a, a rough, gruff New Yorker, he looks at Larry, looks at me, and he says to Larry, do you know how fucking brilliant that is? <laughs> and then Larry looks at me with a big smile, and he says, you can come every day. Okay, so I, I love that story. And this leads, so I've been really, really curious about this because I would love for you to speak to how you've been able to open up relationships with the power of a question. Because it's like, I think that that's, and I think this may speak to your concept of like being more interested than interesting. But it's like, I, I that's one of the things I've admired about you and your stories and what I've seen so far. It's like, that is what really you use to bond relationships with people is when you ask them this question that just cleaves open a whole world for them. So any insights that you may have for people to create or think about asking more effective questions that re that, that deepen a relationship with someone? Well, the, the, uh, in Just Listen, there are some relation, there are some conversation deepeners. And one of them, when someone's speaking, is the focus on some emotional word they're using, like never, always, or their inflection goes up. And when they finish saying that, say to them, say more about the never. Say more about the always. Mm. Or if their voice goes up in intensity, you repeat, say more about that. And when you do that, it changes it from being transactional to you being curious. And then when they say that, Another conversation deepener is to say to them, really, not really, but inviting them to say more like really, really meaning that's fascinating. And then they're going to say even more. Or you can say to them, hmm, meaning you're listening, you're considering, you're considering what they're saying. Uh, uh, they're, they're not wasting your time. They're not saying they're not being stupid. And so they're going to continue to talk. And so the more you get other people to talk and the more you get them to open up about things that they don't open up to your competitors about, the more they're going to be connected to you. I did a presentation hmm. to the Institute of Management Consultants. And, uh, uh, and I think it was called The Secret to Closing More Sales. And I have pretty good openings for my talks. I, I seem to have a knack, so I look at them. And that, these are all management consultants. And I say, how often do you have a first meeting with a prospect? And at the end of the first conversation, 
they lean forward and they say, uh, how soon can you start and how do you like to get paid? Zero response. And I look at them and I said, crickets. <laughs> you know, there's nobody because it never happens. But inside people's minds, they're coming to you because they have a problem. Are those two uh, responses? How soon can you start and how do you like to get paid? Your challenge is to have a conversation where they ask those. <laughs> hmm. And so, so how do you drill down so they ask them? And you do that by asking and drilling down and you getting them to be more open with you than others. And I'll share this little piece. And there's an article called The Secret to Closing More Sales. Never answer a question in the first conversation. So the idea is never answer a question. So, so the more they open up, you you can ask them questions. You know, so you know, you know. So what's on your mind? You know, what's a, uh, uh, you know, what are some of the issues or some of the problems you're having that you need to solve? Um, another conversation deeper is when they say that you can look at them and say, "What's really on your mind?" And that'll that'll go even deeper. And so, again, when they use emotional words, oh, we have this awful situation, or we have this great opportunity, let them finish. And again, I'll repeat, you say, say more about the great opportunity. Say more about the awful situation. And I've already shared with you how you get them to open up more and more and more. And the more they open up to you, and the more you've gone past what the competition does, the more, the, the more they're going to be curious. So what do you think? What do you think? And so what I wrote about in the article is, again, it's never answered their question. And you say to them, because they've opened up more to you, and so they're left hanging. And you say, I can tell you what I think, but it wouldn't be my best answer. So what you've shared with me it seems really important and critical, maybe even urgent. And I don't want to cheat you out of my best answer. And I can tell you kind of what we've done with other people, but what I'd prefer to do is check on some things uh, before I give you my answer, because I want to give you an A plus answer as opposed to a B plus. And the question is, you know, is that something you want me to go find out? Yeah. And, and if so, you know, when would you like to talk again? So the whole purpose of that first meeting is to get a second meeting where they're where they're uh, they're there with bated breath. They want to know more. Why do they want to know more? Because you open them up more. Mm -hmm. But can you track with that and see how that would work? Absolutely. I I there's so much gold. I would just encourage everyone to rewind and listen to the specific language patterns that you shared there. And um, I think another thing that I highlighted, I'm like, I got to make sure that I use this too. It's similar vein in this inside of just listen. You were talking about using language about like um, whether it's me or someone like me or um, your, I think the other example you gave was like, uh, so you're thinking about buying a product 
like mine or a product similar to this, basically alluding to the fact that they have a choice and it it being either you or someone else or a product like yours or someone else. It's just like, that's what I'm noticing in the language patterns is that you're, you're creating the choice for them and you're creating a situation where they're leaning in instead of just needing to be sold to. You're creating a buying conversation instead of a selling conversation. Um, And all those deepeners, man, those are just so brilliant. And that's something that I'm, I'm working on getting better at. It's like, I think I'm, I'm good at identifying identifying uh, really good surface level questions, but it's like what I admire so much about you. It's like, it's just those, and it's not complex, it's simple. It's not, it's not easy, but it's simple. It's just to go identify the emotionally charged words and then just poking a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper until you kind of go at a, a super minute layer that really unlocks uh, what's really important to them or what they're really thinking or what they're really feeling. And unless you address those, you're never going to be able to reach them at the way that you would if you just stayed at the surface level. So I love all that. So again, I Um, think what you're saying is, Mark, that was counterintuitive. I never would have thought of that. Intuitively (laughs) correct. I think it would work. Three, I'm going to re-listen to this to see if I can try it, which leads me to another thing that you're reminding me of one of the other chapters is called fill in the blanks yes i okay i had i'm glad you brought it up because i love this one (laughs) so um when we ask questions of people we we trigger a little anxiety in other people because we go back to grade school when we were asked questions and we didn't know the answer and so when you ask questions it's not just transactional it's a little bit confrontational. Whereas if you do a fill in the blanks, you're inviting them into a sentence. So here's the difference. Um, uh, And you can see how it lands. Uh, uh, What are some of the problems you're trying to solve? That's the question. Fill in the blanks is some of the problems you're trying to solve are so you and then would you open up and it's just so people just people are that are listening i want to make sure you're picking up on this is like dr goulson's like leaning in and and like i'm i'm assuming i'm assuming too you could also use like your hand gestures to like encourage them to listen but i i love that it just makes it so much easier (laughs) and less threatening but continue so so when you say uh, what are some of the problems you're trying to solve perfectly good question uh, but, you know, what what questions also trigger in other people is right and wrong answers, and, and they get flashbacks of having given wrong answers right. in, you know, in grade school and felt stupid. But so if you change, what are some of the problems you're trying to solve to, and you're right, you lean in and you use your hand gesture to invite them. Some of the problems you're trying to solve are, and they tell you, and the reason you're trying to solve them now is because... Huh. And uh, and some of the things that will happen if you don't solve them now are, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, I just, because I, 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 like you see so many people that teach like sales scripts and stuff like that, where it's like asking questions. And it's like, if you're, if you've been in a sales call where people are just asking those questions after questions, it's like, oh, they're, they're like zoning me in to like, they're, they're pigeonholing me to try to get to this. But like, you could almost ask the same questions and have it feel completely differently by opening it up and allowing them to kind of fill in the blanks. I think that's just yeah, yeah, because I love that. Because I just gave um, you a taste of fill in the blanks. 
but see how it lands if the questions are, what are some of the problems you're trying to solve? Uh, and why are you trying to solve them now? And what'll happen if you don't solve them? Those are three strikes and you're out. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so good. I just, I, I, and I would encourage everybody to go listen to your podcast just, and we'll make sure it's all linked up in the show notes, but just to see, see you listening to these questions or asking these questions and, and engaging in these conversations in the quote unquote real world. So you guys can see some real examples of, of this being played out. So I know we're, we're kind of coming up on time here. I want to be respectful and I would love to just squeak in just one more quick story. So uh, September 6th, 1995, where were you? And would you mind telling that story? That's a good story. Uh, let's see. I'm running it. I'm going to be on a podcast, doing a podcast in a little bit. So, uh, on September 6, 1995, I learned 80% of what I know about dealing with difficult people. And one of my subsequent books, maybe we'll do that on another show, is Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with the Impossible uh, mm. and the Irrational People in Your Life. Um, here's a little thing about marketing. One of the reasons I got to speak in Russia, along with a Nobel Prize winner, is the Russian edition of Talking to Crazy is How to Talk to Assholes, and it went viral. <laughs> and that's what I said. I said, you're having me talk with a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, I'm nobody. And they said, his book did not go viral. <laughs> <laughs> but 80% of what I know about dealing with difficult people, I learned on that day because I was an advisor to the O.J. Simpson in the O.J. Simpson criminal trial to the prosecution. And uh, this will have to be some of your older listeners, but if any of you follow that or follow the documentary or the, uh, the TV movie, there was a character named Detective Mark Furman who uh, uh, basically was uh, a person who a one of the defense attorneys, uh, F. Lee Bailey, basically said, I'm going to crack this guy. He's a rogue cop. And on that day, uh, I was sequestered in the top of the criminal court building in Los Angeles, and Detective Mark Furman was taking the Fifth Amendment because he he didn't want to say anything that would incriminate him, and he had said the N-word. And during the trial, he had said earlier that he'd never said the N-word, and anyone who would say that he'd said the N-word was a liar. So I was... Uh, uh, sequestered because if he hadn't taken the Fifth Amendment, you know, they wanted to find out what his testimony was and if I had somehow coached him or done something with him. And I, I didn't. My relationship with the prosecution is I would sit in the courtroom about 30 times in the whole trial and I would fax them things that might, uh, uh, that might work better with the jury. And some of the stuff they used, and it worked, and a lot of it they didn't use, and they lost the trial, so don't talk that much about it. But what happened is I, I got very nervous uh, because I didn't know what was going on, and I'm alone there in this room, and I got a little paranoid. I thought, oh, I'm being set up. I'm a fall guy. Oh, what's going on here? And then what happens is around 5 p.m., I always do this with myself. I put myself in situations where I get very anxious, but instead of panicking, I never panic, I get smart. I mean, it's crazy what I do, but I, 
I reach out to things and then afterwards I say, what did I say yes to? And, but I never repent. So the anxiety crosses over into coming up with something. And so what I realized that he was going to do is when he got up there, he was going to charm me, he was going to frustrate me, he was going to anger me, and then he was going to outrage me. Because what difficult people frustration and anger, and when they outrage us, many people aren't comfortable getting enraged. And so what will happen is we will try to uh, close down how outraged we're feeling because we don't want to get enraged. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it. So I knew he would do that. So he gets there. And uh, again, I have this way of holding on to people's eyes. So I'm holding on to his eyes. Uh, and what I'm saying to him with my eyes is, I'm not perfect, but I'm not hiding someone who killed two people. What's your story? So that's exactly what I was thinking when I'm looking into his eyes. And Something else that I realized is that when people use innuendo, meaning they don't ask questions, uh, they say, we understand you've been in the, the part of the trial since the beginning, Dr. Goldston. And when someone says that and you go, uh-huh, you're leaning forward so that they can put a hook in your neck and reel you in. And, uh, and we don't know exactly what your role is with the prosecution. But instead of saying, uh-huh, 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 I just blinked at him each time. So he'd make those statements, and I'd tilt my head, look into his eyes, and I'd blink. And he did this for about five minutes. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the district attorney people, uh, were, uh, the, one of the first ones who was the partner with Marsha Clark at the beginning, Bill Hodgman, he looks at me, and he says, Mark, you haven't said anything. And I looked at Bill and I said, he hasn't asked me a question. And then I went back and looked at Bailey in the eye, you know, directly. And he sort of flinched like there might be more to me than this. And he keeps asking things. And there was a point at which he was insulting me. He was saying, so you're here to say that you didn't medicate, you didn't coach, you didn't do anything with Detective Mark Berman. And I looked at him, and everybody in the room was looking at me, and it was working so well, I didn't say anything for seven seconds. And then I went, huh? And then when I go, huh? Everybody in the room looks at me like I'm going to say something, so I count to seven again. <laughs> and then after 14 seconds, I say to Bailey, I use a little innuendo, I say, Mr. Bailey, and he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> um, my mind wandered the last the five or five, six minutes. Can you repeat everything you said? Because I thought it was important. He says, what? I said, yeah, you know, my mind wandered. It's 7 p.m. I don't think I can get my car out of the parking lot. It closed at 5. I don't know. I'm going to get it. And, you know, and it sounded like, you know, you were saying something important. Uh, can you run it by me again? And people who are bullies, they don't have a substance. They count on provoking you into making errors, and then they catch you when you're off balance. And he looked at one of Johnny Cochran's associates, a guy named uh, Carl Douglas, and said, what did I say? And at that point, it didn't matter because Furman had taken the Fifth Amendment, and it was sort of a moot point. And so 
uh, at that point, uh, I said, Mr. Bailey, it's been a long day. I'm not giving you the answers you want. If you can tell me what it is you really want me to say, and it's close to the truth, I'll be happy to tell you, because I'm tired. But if it's not close to the truth, I'm going to have a problem with it. And he just looked at me like, what the F is And then he said to the, pro the uh, DA uh, next to me, the, uh, uh, he said, um, I don't think we need to call Dr. Goulston on the stand. Because it was a moot point. I don't even know why he was interviewing me. And then as he was leaving the room, I said, Mr. Bailey, I have a question for you. And Bill Hodgman said, Mark, Mark, it's over. The towards the end of the trial, you know. And I said, Bill, I've got it handled. And I looked at him. I said, Mr. Bailey, earlier in the trial, there was this phrase that came out that you can't unring a bell. When someone says the N-word, it's going to inflame the jury. And yesterday, in front of the world, you slurred me by saying that I did something with Detective Furman, which I did. So, do you have any idea how we could unslur a slur? And, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, Bill Hodgman said to me, Mark, they, they misspelled your name. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And Bailey leaves the room, and I get ready to leave. And then he comes back in, and he says, I'll trade you a retraction in tomorrow's newspaper if you tell me what you figured out about me. And I just shrug my shoulders and say no. But I think it's a pretty decent story, but it, it really tells you what difficult people do. And so when people are pushing your buttons, know ahead of time who they are, never expect them not to push your buttons, and hold a little bit of yourself back. And when they push your buttons, you can look at them and say, uh, can you run that by me again? Because I was distracted. Or you can say, can you run that by me again in kind of a calmer voice? Because I got all triggered by the way you said it. Or another thing you can say to them is, do you really believe what you just said? Well, the simplest thing is to tilt your head and go, huh? <laughs> but know who they are ahead of time. And when they, and when they go for the jugular, I just gave you five responses you can pick from. Man, so such an incredible, incredible story and very actionable for everyone to sit and apply that. So now you don't have to be bullied or taken advantage of again. So I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Dr. Goulson, you've been so generous with your time. I know you got to go. You have a podcast interview yourself. So I uh, want to wrap things up here. And I just want to really quick have a conversation with our friends listening. And I want to say, if this is your very first episode, you could be listening to any other podcast in the world, but you decided to be here today. And for that, I am so grateful for you. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And I always like to say whether you're a new friend or an old friend, I, and I say this at every episode, but this one in particular, this episode can absolutely, absolutely change someone's life. Like there is, I almost guarantee that there's somebody that is going through a rough time right now and you can, they, they can hear the questions that they can ask and open up a dialogue. You can literally save someone's life by sharing this episode with them. So don't take that lightly. You have lots of responsibility, but whether, whether you choose to share it or not, I appreciate you so much for being here. And Dr. Goulson, thank you so much for your time. Any final words, parting piece of advice, anything else you want to say before? Before we end things for today no no you've been great and uh thank you and, and i do hope uh, especially the earlier part that people will take some note from it because if you can reach out and get through to someone you're worried about you might save a life absolutely thank you so much
Thank you. Well, my friends, that concludes our episode with Dr. Mark Goulston. And I don't normally take the time to record something after the fact, but we were running right up on time and I didn't get a chance to ask Dr. Goulston the best place that you can find out all the stuff that he's up to and where to check out his books and all that stuff. So I sent him an email afterwards and he sent me this stuff so that I can make sure that I got it in if you want to continue to explore his work, which I would highly encourage that you do. I have had, I just had so much fun going through all of his content. So you can find him at his site, markgoulston.com. That's G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N is how he spells his name. So markgoulston.com. You can also go to his other site, michelangelomindset.com. And you can also find his book, just listen, real influence and talking to crazy on Amazon, or those are also all linked up on his site. And you can also go wherever you're listening to this right now, you can go check out the, my wake up call podcast. And we've had some mutual guests on the show, including Michael shine, which I already mentioned, Andre Norman and B Jeffrey Madoff have all been on his show as well, which is awesome. And so I really, really enjoyed this episode myself. I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. And we'll talk to you soon.